0: You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempi.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio day. My name is Charlie. If I haven't gotten to know you, I'm one of the pastors here with Missio Tempe. We are a church that's connected with two other congregations across our valley, one in Missio Missio Mesa, which is in downtown Mesa, and then also in Phoenix off of the 17 Freeway. We're in a really cool series right now, but let me start with a story that I think will segue well into our series that we're in. We started last week, so if you're new this week, don't worry, we're just one week in, so you won't feel too far behind. It's in the middle of the 1920s, when a young German scholar got his doctorate at the age of 21, 21 years old. This guy was brilliant. And to understand his story, you have to understand the context of where he was growing up and what he was facing. In the 1920s, this came right after World War I, in the late uh, 1918, 1919. And in 1919, specifically when World War I ended, there was this thing called the Treaty of Versailles, a peace agreement. But within this agreement, The blame for the entire war was placed squarely on the shoulders of Germany. Germany was responsible for the war. This created humiliation and shame within the German people and the German country. And so this young scholar in the midst of this environment grew up with this shame and humiliation and in many ways began to blend his vision of Christianity with German triumph. In a sense, his German nationalism got blended together. The gospel got transformed into German triumph over their enemies. It was messy. It was merged together. Yet this young man was a brilliant young man. and At the age of 24, he traveled to America to do a postdoctoral one-year program. If you don't know who I'm talking about, it's Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is his name. In 1920, or in, at the age of 24, when he traveled to New York, he studied at Union Theological Seminary. And through a connection with one of his classmates, he got connected to a historic black church in Harlem, New York. Abyssinian Baptist Church was its name. And over the next year, as Bonhoeffer spent time with these black brothers and sisters in this context, his theology began to change. He noticed the unhealth of some of his German nationalism that God had blended with Christianity. At Abyssinian Baptist Church, he saw a theology from the margins, from below. At this church, he saw Christ as the one who is the sufferer, who has solidarity with those who are oppressed. At Abyssinian, he was introduced to the spirituals, which for many years later, he would play the spirituals for his students in Germany on these big records that he kept. It was in this context where Bonhoeffer experienced this grand transformation of everything he knew about discipleship. And much of what he wrote, which maybe many of you have read, Cost of Discipleship, came from his experience with Abyssinian Baptist Church. And not only that, his whole experience that year of with these black brothers and sisters at Abyssinian Baptist Church transformed his theology so that when he went back to Germany, he took up a theology of resistance against Nazism, against Nazis' play and role within the German church at the time. Now, I tell this story because we, the last, last week and then the next couple of weeks, we're in a series looking at the spirituals. These were, song, these were songs sung by black brothers and sisters enslaved in our country centuries ago. And they sang these songs to remember how God was with them in the midst of great suffering and oppression. And my hope is, as I told the story of Bonhoeffer, that he would be for many of us a template, a model of what it looks like when we encounter Christ at the margins, when we see discipleship from that perspective, we might have a different vision of what it looks like in every area of human life, to hold this big vision of the gospel of both word and deed that he saw at Abyssinian Baptist Church. That's my goal, that much like Bonhoeffer, we would have that same kind of experience through this series. And something in us, would be transformed and we would never see the world the same way. We would never see discipleship just the same way by the lessons we can learn from these different spirituals we've been studying. The, the theme or the name of this, this series is called The Rhythm of Faith, Lessons from the Spirituals. And so last week we looked at the spiritual weight in the water. This week we're going to look at the spiritual, There is a Bomb in Gilead. Maybe you're familiar with it because Kanye introduced it in one of his latest albums. There's a Bomb in Gilead. So, this is what we're gonna do. It's in your handout that you guys have on paper there. The lyrics are there. I'm gonna read the lyrics for you. And then, what I'm gonna do is, as I'm reading these lyrics, I want you to see which line or phrase kinda catches your attention, grabs you in some way. And then, I'm gonna have you share that with somebody that's sitting around you. And we're just gonna talk and discuss for a couple of minutes. What, in a sense, is this spiritual speaking to you? So this is the spiritual. There is a balm in Gilead. Let me read it to you. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. Don't ever feel discouraged, for Jesus is your friend. And if you lack of knowledge, he'll never refuse to lend. If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say he died for all. This is the spiritual we're going to be looking at this week. Turn to somebody around you and just as you listen to those lyrics and see those lyrics, which phrase, which word kind of grabs your attention as you, as you think about what it looks like to learn some lessons from this spiritual, okay? Turn to the people around you. Ready, set, go. All right, I'd love to hear from you. Just shout out, what, what line stuck out to you? Let's talk together as a group for a second. Which phrase or line kind of grabs your attention and why? Awesome, Michael, yeah. Why did, why did I connect with you, with you? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. We can feel really discouraged in our work and feel like it's in vain. Absolutely. Anyone else? Yeah. So if you can't preach like Peter, you can't pray like Paul. I think of the passage in Corinthians where Paul says, I I brought to you simply that Christ was crucified. That's foolishness to some, a stumbling block to others. That Jesus died for all. That's what I bring. That's my message. Absolutely. Anybody else? Amen. Let's, let's transition here from looking at the spiritual because if you were with us last week, Pastor John Talley from Roosevelt Community Church, he said that the spirituals are a channel for the Word of God. Largely an illiterate people couldn't read the Bible right in front of them, so they had to learn the Word of God through song. The spirituals are a channel for the Word of God, and this, this spiritual actually comes from a very specific passage in the book of Jeremiah. So if you have a Bible... Uh, to pull it out, whether it's your phone or an actual printed one, and look at Jeremiah chapter 8 with me. Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 14 through chapter 9, verse 1. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Jeremiah chapter 8, 14 through 9, 1. Let me give you some context as, you're, as you're, uh, you're flipping there or scrolling there. We spent 12 weeks in the book of Jeremiah this fall, so hopefully you remember something from that series. But the book of Jeremiah is the story of a prophet telling God's people that because of their sinfulness and rebelling against Yahweh, they're going to go into exile to Babylon. They're going to be forcibly displaced from their homes, the place that they know uh, where they grew up. and They're going to be taken away in bondage to Babylon. Now, it was not because of the sinfulness or their sinfulness that the African people were transferred from their country, the place that they lived across the Atlantic to the United States. That is not the parallel. Yet, yet the theme of exile, a people that have been displaced, you can see how the theme of exile would have been relevant for these slaves that were singing these songs. That Jeremiah the prophet, as he talks about exile, it would resonate deeply with our African-American brothers and sisters who were singing these songs, knowing what it was like to be displaced forcibly from your home. And it's in this tradition, in this context, that Jeremiah begins to speak. Or should I say, the book of Jeremiah begins to speak. So let me read Jeremiah 8, verses 14 through 9-1. This is what it says. Verse 14. Why are we sitting here? Gather together, let us flee to the fortified cities and perish there, for the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poisoned water to drink, because we have sinned against him. We hoped for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there is only terror. The snorting of the enemy's horses is heard from Dan, and at their neighing of the stallions, the whole land trembles. They have come to devour the land and everything in it. The city and all who live there, see, I will send venomous snakes among you, vipers that cannot be charmed, and they will bite you," declares the Lord. Verse eighteen: "You who are my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. Listen to my cry, of my pe- to the cry of my people from a land far away. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is their king no longer there? Why have they aroused my anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved." And listen to these next words. This is where the, the phrase balm in Gilead comes from. Verse 21. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and the horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no phys- physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. This is our passage I want to spend some time thinking about. In light of the spiritual and in light of this passage, I want you to hear two things today, my friends. Two lessons that we learn. One, we know a suffering God. And two... We know a soothing God. We know a suffering God and a soothing God. Let me show you. In this passage in Jeremiah, one of the main questions we need to ask is who is actually talking? Is it Jeremiah the prophet? Or is it God himself? Notice as we get into the middle of the passage in verses 18, 19, and then into 9-1, it sounds like there's been a transition and it's no longer Jeremiah speaking, but God speaking. God is the one who is mourning. God is the one who is suffering alongside his people and sees their brokenness. Think about how this theme of suffering would have resonated so deeply with those enslaved in our country, that they knew a God that was not far off, but that was near, that suffered alongside his own people. Chris Wright, he's a, he's a scholar who's done a lot of work on Jeremiah. He says this, that we know is suffering us, as the brutal fact is this of jeremiah 8 that we just read god himself is breaking down in agonizing sorrow god is crushed and wounded by the violence inflicted on his people god wishes he could call for ointment and doctors to heal the wounds god is dissolving in tears over the mountains of those slain in siege and battle god is holding his head in his head his hands sobbing through the tears sobbing through the tears This is what maybe separates Christianity from many of the other stories and religions of our day is that our God is not one who's far off, but he enters into the suffering alongside the suffering of his people. God is being crushed as he sees his people being crushed. Again, think about how deeply that would resonate with a people that experienced so much suffering and pain. God was not far off. He was very near. Now, each of these things, the suffering God and the soothing God, I want to give you a challenge, in a sense. A way for us, in a sense, to take lessons from these songs and from Jeremiah 8 that we can, in a sense, as we go through our week, step into what it looks like to faithfully play our role in God's story. The first challenge is this. In our culture, we often look to particular people or particular institutions to, in a sense, take our burdens to to share our suffering with, whether it's an Instagram post to share, whether it's a psychiatrist, these are all good things. Don't hear me say this is wrong. Whether it's a close friend or a spouse, we, as we're experiencing suffering, want to quickly step towards someone else, something else, to, in a sense, minimize the pain that we're feeling. Listen to this quote from Harold Carter. He has this awesome book called The Prayer Tradition of Black People. You can't find it in very many places, but if you can find a copy, of it I highly recommend it. He says this Catholic persons traditionally go to a priest for a confession and counsel. Rich persons consult a psychiatrist. Black people take their burden to the Lord. They take their burden to the Lord. Here's my challenge for us this week. Whatever suffering you face, whatever hardship you encounter in the next five days or that you're carrying even just this very morning, before you share with a close friend or a spouse, before you post on Instagram asking for prayer, before you go to a psychiatrist or counselor, all these things are good things. Before you do any of that, would you take your burden to the Lord, the suffering God who suffers alongside you, who enters into your suffering like a good friend or spouse, who doesn't quickly jump to conclusions to fix and to solve, but before he does that, he enters into the suffering. He enters into the suffering. That's my first challenge for you this week, in light of us knowing a suffering God. A couple of years ago, I should say six, I should know this exactly, because this is about when I got married. Six years ago, exactly, Almost exactly, a couple months afterwards. Uh, I convinced Keaton, my wife, to move to Arizona from Pasadena, California. Her twin sister's here today, Carly. They grew up in this amazing little town called Sierra Madre. It's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth in my mind. It's incredible. If houses weren't $3 million there, I would love to live there. So she grew up there, and once we got married, I convinced her to move out out to Arizona. And so she, she came along. She trusted me, I guess, in that way. And the first couple of months we got to Arizona, something really significant happened. Her skin started to get really dry. Her lips began to crack. She wasn't used to the Arizona dryness coming from California. And literally, for the first couple of months, she couldn't figure out what it was. But it was like, no, honey, this is, this is because the air here is dry and we live in a desert. And you've grown up in that cool California town and by the beach and all that stuff. This is what it's really like in Arizona. And so with her cracked skin, she needed to begin to, to get different ointments in a sense to deal with this challenge. Even our water here is drier that comes out of our showers, unless you have one of those cool uh, water softeners. So when I'm thinking this whole week about this picture of there is a balm in Gilead, a balm is an ointment. Gilead was known as this rich place that had all these different plants and herbs and different uh, types of medicines that could be created. It was a balm. It was an ointment. I'm thinking like Burt's Bees. Burt's Bees. That's the picture I have in my mind. Burt's Bees. Like Burt's Bees got to be making a killing in Arizona. So I'm thinking this all week, right? And then they've been, uh, Roosevelt Community Church that we're partnering with for this series, they release a preaching collective every week for 20 minutes where they just talk about the passage. And James, he's the creative director there, he, uh, he starts describing this idea of balm. And he describes it not as Burt's Bees, but as neosporin. He's like, yeah, because neosporin, it's this ointment, it's this balm that heals things that are like an open wound, or it, it, it prevents infection, infection that can, in a sense, take over your entire body. Neosporin is this powerful treatment, and even with scars themselves. Neosporin has this ability over time to reduce the the scarring on our skin. Here, I'm thinking of Burt's Bees, like a minor picture of cracked skin. Maybe an itchy arm because I need to put some ointment on it. And here, he's thinking of neosporin. I'm going to go with his image. That's a way better image for this passage. Not only do we know a suffering God, but we know a soothing God. A soothing God. Notice the lyrics that says, uh, there's a balm in Gilead. uh, And then it goes on to say, to heal the sin-sick soul. Sin is like an infection that seeks to completely overwhelm us. It makes us sick. And we desire wholeness and we need a balm. We need an ointment to, in a sense, deal with our sickness our sinfulness. Our God is not only a suffering God who comes into our suffering, but then offers us soothing as well. Here's my question for you as we look and think about this idea of soothing. Did you notice the difference between the spiritual and the passage when it comes to the line, there is a balm? What's different? What was it, Chris? This guy must have been an English major. Good work, Baldessari. In the passage, if you notice in Jeremiah 8, it says, Is there a balm in Gilead? What does the spiritual say? There is a balm in Gilead. Please hear this. What we can learn from faithful black brothers and sisters who came before us, who sang these songs, who faithfully participated in God's story, they knew this. Of all the questions of the Old Testament, of every question that was asked in the Old Testament becomes exclamation points in Christ. It's not, is there a bomb? No, there is a bomb in Gilead, in Christ Jesus. It's not that God offers a bomb as anointment. No, Jesus is the bomb in Gilead. Think about that for a moment. We don't come to God to get something from Him. We don't come to Him to get anointment. ointment. He Himself is the ointment in Jesus. Jesus is the balm. How... Uh, uh, Thurman says this, Howard Thurman, he's a famous writer who wrote about this spiritual specifically. He says this, The slave caught the mood of this spiritual dilemma and with it did an amazing thing. Speaking of the, from question mark to exclamation. He did an amazing thing. He straightened the question mark in Jeremiah's sentence into an exclamation point. There is a balm in Gilead. This past weekend, we were on a, a, a men's retreat, about 11 or 12 of us. And uh, Nick Barker, one of the elders, he said this, that basically manhood in our culture has been really boiled down to basically a series of life hacks, like a series of techniques. In a sense, if you can just do, have the right technique, in a sense, you will be made whole. You will truly be a man. Just have the right techniques, have the right life hacks, whether it's around budgeting or fitness or dieting. And, and I don't know if you realize this or not, but we have a culture that is obsessed with technique, like obsessed with it. From sexuality to dieting, everything in our culture is about the right technique. If I could just find the right diet, if I could just find the right technique, if I could just have this, this, this product specifically, then I will be made whole. Then I will have healing for my sin-sick soul. But the good news of our story if you're a follower of Christ and you're living in this story from creation to restoration, if Jesus is truly the bomb, my challenge, our sec, my second challenge for you is to not run for the next and greatest technique to find healing and wholeness. To not, to not run to the next life hack or the next device or the next thing that you think will bring you wholeness, but rather to come to Jesus as the bomb, as the ointment for your sin-sick soul. Not to get something from him, but to simply have him in relationship with him. To, to, you have taken on his life in Christ. That you were dead in sins, Ephesians says, and you've been raised to life in Christ. Now you are seated in Christ at the right hand of God. This is your identity. is isn't a life hack or a technique. You take on the very life of Christ in his death and resurrection. So here's my challenge for you. My first one was... Take your burdens to the Lord before you go somewhere else. In light of us knowing a suffering God. My second challenge for you is this. Immerse yourself in the life of Jesus. See what Jesus says. See what Jesus does. Follow Jesus where he leads. Maybe this year, pick a story of the gospels of Jesus and just spend so much time just in a sense Taking as him, as the, the Jesus is the balm, as the healing ointment. Taking from his very life. Immerse yourself in the life of Jesus. And you know this. And yet we can be distracted by so many different techniques and hacks and other strategies that we miss that we have the very best thing right in front of us. Jesus himself. He is the ointment. He is the balm. Would you spend time immersing yourself in his life this year before you turn to some other thing? So if you take your burdens to the Lord this week, maybe the second thing is, find a story in the Gospels this week and just say, hey, for this entire year, I'm going to immerse myself in the life of Jesus as the soothing God who offers him very self, his very self as the healing ointment, as the balm that we need so desperately for our sin-sick souls. Let me turn your attention to the very end of the spiritual. Uh, if you you have uh, the page in front of you, the very last line says this. If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say he died for all. One of the greatest challenges we've had uh, as as uh, different clergy or pastors or even different leaders in our cities and even in this city, is the challenge in the last year of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories. Uh, this is a huge challenge. Uh, there's all these different theories of how it make sense of what's going on in our world. And for some reason or another, particularly Christians, evangelicals, are drawn to these theories. Overwhelmingly. But I've been thinking a lot, like, why, why is that? Like, why particularly are Christians, specifically evangelicals, drawn to conspiracies over and over and over again? Now, before you dismiss it and you say, well, because they're stupid or dumb or whatever or, or something like that, maybe this idea, this, this being drawn to conspiracies, actually comes from a deep-rooted place of knowing that there's more to the world that the eye can see. There's more to the world that the eye can see. And secondly, there's this deep desire for the impossible to happen. For the impossible to happen, to take place. For things to go complete 180 in a different direction. There's this deep desire that there's more than what we can see. And a desire for the impossible. Now, we're not going to get into all the different conspiracy theories and try to psychoanalyze each one. We're not going to do it this morning. But I want to close with this. Before we quickly dismiss all the conspiracy theories, recognize where they're rooted in and recognize this. We believe in a crazy story of what's happened in the history of the world. We believe in a Savior from 2,000 years ago who was born in a small town of Bethlehem with no room in the end, who was born of a virgin birth, who was, who, ra- who was raised up, who grew in stature and wisdom, who announced that he was the chosen Messiah of the entire world. His whole life led to a cross where we believe he died physically and resurrected physically three days later. Who then, after he gave his commission to the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, ascended to the Father and now sits at the right hand of God. We believe in some crazy stuff. Like seriously, think about that story that many of you have put your faith and your trust in. And so when it says, if you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the world that seems foolish to the world, it seems like a stumbling block to many, that Jesus died for all. He died for all. Each week, as we think about this suffering and soothing God who is fully embodied in Jesus himself, each week we come to this table to do something also crazy, to say we are remembering Jesus' body and his blood through taking the bread and the juice. The you and I, as we live inside of God's story, as we recognize that our sin-sick souls have been Uh, have been healed, have been made whole in light of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection, his offering of forgiveness to us, we come to this table to be reoriented into this story, to remember that God has entered into our suffering, and he's provided the ultimate ointment, the ultimate soothing on our behalf with Jesus himself. And so in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to the front here to come and take from Christ his body and his blood. If you have young kids with you, you're welcome to bring them up. Would you show them with? Uh, would you have them show with their hands if they're receiving communion or not? So that our our uh, our our stewards of communion here, the Hamiltons, will know who to give communion to. And would you remember that the ultimate beauty of our story, and what our faithful black brothers and sisters have gone before us clung to, was that they, we knew a God who entered into the suffering who was with us in the great brokenness and oppression and sadness, and yet also was the God who offered soothing to our souls, who offered healing with Jesus as the balm that's in Gilead. So would you come right now and experience from Jesus, his body and his blood, would you hear these words from Corinthians that sets up our table for today? It says this, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, that he died for all, until he comes. Come to the table, eat with the king, and be nourished in this God who's both the suffering and soothing God on your behalf.